Please turn with me, if, if you would, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 10. Uh, Genesis 10 will be our sermon text for this morning. We have been working through uh, the book of Genesis for a number of months now, and we come to Genesis chapter 10, which, uh, if you're here for the first time, is a weird place to jump in. So, uh, uh, welcome. Welcome. Uh, Genesis chapter 10 is, is, uh, is a genealogy, uh, the whole chapter. So we're going to go ahead and, and read that. Uh, but before we do that, let's pray together. Oh, our Father, we, we thank you for every part of your word, even the, the odd parts, uh, even the parts that are so foreign to us. And uh, we just pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning, that you would open hearts and minds, uh, that you would help us to understand and uh, receive and believe what you have to say to us through your word this morning. We pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit to those ends. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 10. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarmah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabtaka. The sons of Ra'amah, Sheba, and Didan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, and Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Neftuhim, Pathrushim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shelef, Hazarmaveth, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Misha in the direction of Sefer to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. 
These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. We live in a day when uh, racial, uh, cultural, and national divisions are in the forefront. Now, I'm not sure if there has ever been a time when they have not been in the forefront, but they certainly are today, at least in the news. Uh, Divisions, of course, in one sense, are the way we define ourselves, right? Me, not you. Us, not them. Here, not there. This belief, not that belief. But in our day, it seems that those divisions have made their way to a a granular level. Uh, So we define ourselves more and more narrowly. Uh, so we'll, we'll say, I'm, I'm a Christian, but I'm not that kind of Christian, or I'm Presbyterian, but I'm not that kind of Presbyterian, or I'm in the PCA, but I'm not that kind of PCA, and on it goes. And, and very quickly, right, those divisions become battle lines. Now, don't get me wrong, uh, some distinctions are really important. In Genesis 3, we've already seen in the book of Genesis, God said he would put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, That is, there would be an an unbridgeable divide between God's people and the people of the serpent, the people of the lie. Uh, We see a a similar kind of division in Noah's curse on Canaan and his blessing on Japheth and Shem, which we looked at last week. And so it may come as a surprise in light of those divisions that we've been seeing uh, that what we have here before us in Genesis 10, at least in part, is a chapter on unity. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about unity this morning on a macro level, uh, the big picture of God's plan for uniting the nations. And we'll talk about three things. We'll look at the the unity of the nations as we see it in Genesis 10. Uh, We'll look at the, the division and domination that we see begin in Genesis 10. And then we'll talk about the unity that is ultimately and only had through the cross. So first, the unity of the nations uh, in Genesis chapter 10. Uh, This chapter in Genesis begins a new section in in the book. Uh, If you've been here, you may remember that this phrase in verse 1, these are the generations of, is a a marker in Genesis. It's used 10 times, and each time it's at the beginning of a new section, uh, which discusses the the progeny of the one mentioned in the heading. That is, uh, what it's saying is, this is what came from this person. Uh, So after the prologue in Genesis 1, a new section begins in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, which said, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Uh, That is, this is what came from the heavens of the earth after God had created them. In chapter 5, verse 1, uh, we had, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And what follows is Adam's lineage lineage down to Noah. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, we read, these are the generations of Noah. And from that comes the story of the flood, ending with the blessings and curses on Noah's three sons. And now here in in Genesis chapter 10, verse 1, we read, These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And what we find in Genesis 10 is actually something that is pretty unique in ancient Near Eastern literature. And, and that's striking because up to this point, and even into chapter 11, there have been parallels with other uh, ancient Near Eastern literature. So there, there are other ancient Near Eastern creation stories and flood stories and even tower stories, which we'll look at next week. And there are other stories of those things because these things happened and they were in the common memory of the ancient peoples. But this text, 
does something that no one else tried to do, which was give a comprehensive kind of 20,000-foot view of all the peoples of the earth. I say uh, comprehensive, not exhaustive, uh, because I don't mean that it's complete in every detail. Uh, The writer is selective, as writers always have to be, and he's selective in what names he includes. And so, for example, he mentions the sons of Gomer and Javan, sons of Jepheth, but he doesn't name the sons of Magog and Madai and Tubal and Meshech or Tiras, who are Gomer and Javan's brothers. Well, why does he mention the sons of two brothers, but not the sons of the other five? Uh, There's no intention here of being complete in every detail. Uh, The point is to give kind of the big, broad, brushstroke picture of all the peoples of the earth. In fact, what we have here, if you take it strictly speaking as a genealogy, it it would be a little bit misleading because while some of the names given here are names of individual people, other names are names of people groups. So verse 16 mentions the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, and so on. And still other names are, are, are place names, so like Egypt or Sidon or Sheba. And so many commentators point out uh, that what we have here is the division of people, not simply biologically, as we would think of from a family tree. And so someone might be the father of a city, or just as today, we might talk about someone being the father of a movement or the father of a business. Uh, And so here, as uh, one Old Testament scholar put it, uh, the terms sons of and fathered might refer to political or geographical or social or linguistic relationships. And at the same time, what we have here is kind of a tightly structured genealogy. Uh, There are seven sons of Japheth mentioned and seven grandsons. Uh, Of Ham's sons, we have listed seven sons of Cush and seven sons of Egypt. You notice the repetition of the number seven, which keeps coming up in the book of Genesis. Um, There are 11 sons or nations said to be fathered by Canaan, and uh, which, which some attribute, some commentators attribute to kind of the chaotic nature of the Canaanites. That is, the writer didn't want to present them in an orderly way. So he didn't cut it down to seven. He just threw it all out there. Um, you have ten sons from Shem to Eber. And uh, as we will see, ten is another number of completeness in the Hebrew Scriptures. And then Eber's line splits into Peleg and Joktan. And then there are, uh, Joktan and his sons are 14 in all. The end result of all of this is a table that includes 70 people, peoples, and places, Uh, a number which you get when you actually don't count the Philistines, which, as you can see in verse 14, are put in a parenthesis in the ESV, and so not a part of the main genealogy. And all of this is just to say that what we find here is a pretty highly stylized or structured genealogy, accurate in what it says, but created not to be complete but to make a point. And so what we have here is the account of how the peoples of the earth begin to spread out. Uh, If you are interested in a detailed study of this, uh, you can take a look at at James Boyce's commentary on Genesis. He looks at each name and traces each name and the influence of that person out to various parts of the world. It's pretty fascinating. But the short version is this. Japheth's children head north and west into northern Asia and Europe, Uh, but Madai, one of his children, the father of the Medes, heads east. And that fulfills Noah's blessing on Japheth in chapter 927 that Japheth would be enlarged, right? He is, because he ends up being the father of the European peoples, some northern Asian peoples, the Greeks, and the Medes. 
not a lot is said about Japheth because uh, these people had the least to do with Israel in the Old Testament, and so the least to do with the rest of the story of Genesis. So they're just mentioned. Ham's sons, though, are a lot more familiar to the Bible's story. Uh, all the villains are here, aren't they, as Ham's children? Egypt, Canaan, Assyria, Nineveh, Babylon. Uh, these are the bad guys in the rest of the Old Testament. That is, the, these are Israel's enemies uh, throughout the story. Uh, they are mostly uh, settled in the Middle East and in Africa, but some also, the Sinites, for example, head east into Asia and into China. Of course, then we have Shem. Uh, Shem, from whom we get the term Semitic, uh, he is the father of the Semitic peoples. And one of his descendants is Eber, which is possibly where we get the name for the Hebrew people. Uh, so we have the beginning of the Semitic peoples, the beginning of the Hebrew peoples right here in the table of nations. Eber has two sons, one uh, named Peleg, and in his days we're told the earth was divided, which is most likely a reference uh, to the linguistic division that we will see at Babel in chapter 11. So, you know, the next chapter, the Tower of Babel story happens, and uh, it's, it's really set in the middle of this genealogy, but they finish the genealogy and then go back and tell that story. And so what we have here is, is this comprehensive, though not exhaustive, account of the peoples of the earth as they spread out over all the earth. What's the point, though, of such an account, right? And, and, and uh, for us, we really don't see the point because th this, this kind of thing to us is, you know, we read this list of names, our eyes kind of gloss over, but they had a point. There was a reason that the writer of Genesis included this. So what's the point? Uh, the, the first thing is this. God is fulfilling his original blessing on humanity. God wants his image, as we've talked about in Genesis, he wants his image to, to fill the earth, uh, God blessed first Adam and then Noah, commanding them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And guess what's happening in Genesis chapter 10? Humanity is being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. Uh, now, that's not the end of the story, right? There's, there's more that's going on. In fact, even some of the details here uh, imply more, which will only come to light again in chapter 11. But the basic plot is humanity is filling the earth with God's image, just as God intended for them to do. The second thing to say about this is that all people are under God's care. Uh, God's blessing, God is here blessing all the peoples of the earth, not just his people, not just Israel, but all people. In fact, you'll notice that Israel isn't even on this list. Uh, but because of its summary big picture perspective, Israel could have been, the writer could have included the lineage down to Israel. He doesn't do that, though. Uh, and the reason is because the focus here is on the nations, all nations as under God's sovereign care. And this is actually something that is a consistent message in Scripture, but often overlooked. So uh, let me uh, mention a few passages. Deuteronomy 32 uh, says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of, of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. That is, God gave every nation, every people their place. God, the Lord, Yahweh, is not a tribal God stuck in a little corner of the world. All the nations are his. Or Amos chapter 9, verse 7, uh, God says, Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel? Declares the Lord, Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaphtar, and the Syrians from Kir? Again, all the nations belong to God. He plants everyone where they are. In Acts 17, 26, Paul picks up on this. 
Paul says that God made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And so God rules over the nations. They exist by his command according to his will when and where he will. He was never, quote, just concerned with Israel. Uh, just as today, he is not just concerned with Christian people. Now, I, I'm, not, I'm not teaching universalism here. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Uh, but that God is sovereign over and at work in and through every people on the face of the earth, ultimately for his redemptive purposes in Christ. God is sovereign. God is at work. Uh, there's a, a third general thing to draw from this genealogy, and that is the unity of all people. Again, Paul brought that out in Acts 17, 26, didn't he? He said, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And we could add not just the one man Adam, but the one man Noah and his three sons. All the nations have a common root in Noah. Now, these second two points especially should affect the way we view other people. God is at work among the nations. We all have a common origin in Adam and Noah. This should increase our love for all people. It should increase our sense of solidarity with all people. Uh, this should, should cut down at the root any sense of superiority, uh, of, of racial superiority or racial prejudice. The diversity we see in this table is something to be celebrated as the work of God blessing the nations. And so that's the unity of the nations. One God caring for one people coming from Noah. And yet, of course, that doesn't last, does it? Which brings us to the second thing we see here, division and domination. Uh, one man uh, highlighted in this genealogy is Nimrod. Nimrod, uh, according to verse 8, was a mighty man, a great hunter. In fact, he was so great, he was the paradigm for greatness in his day. Verse 9 says, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Right? He's one of those guys who is so great at what he does, he stood out above everyone else. So, so like Rembrandt as a painter or Michael Jordan as a basketball player, Nimrod stood out as a mighty warrior. What is Nimrod known for? Well, uh, first off, his, his, actually, his very name means we shall rebel, which probably gives you some indication as to his character. He was a man who sought to build for himself a kingdom. Verse 10 says, the beginning of his kingdom was. And what is then listed are cities. Some are well known like Babel and Nineveh, great cities. Uh, and Nimrod uh, built these cities. Now, he was not an architect. He was a conqueror. And in, in Micah 5.8, Micah calls the, the land of Assyria the land of Nimrod. And the Assyrians were a ruthless people, and so apparently was their father, Nimrod, who founded ruthless city after ruthless city. Uh, why mention Nimrod in the middle of this genealogy? Why highlight this character? Uh, well, chapter 10 displays, of course, not only the unity of all peoples, but also the diversity of the peoples of the earth. So three times we hear some kind of refrain like, uh, these are the peoples by their clans, their languages, their lands, their nations. Uh, and I think people uh, can get uncomfortable with that kind of diversity in the ancient world as with today. And so what do you do with that? Well, you seek to bring uh, political unity by force. That's what Nimrod was doing trying to unify all the peoples under him. 
Nimrod attempts to build his kingdom, to cover the earth with the great kingdom of Nimrod. Uh, This is the the kind of unity by domination philosophy. Uh, This can happen on a world scale, as it did here. It can happen among friends, can't it? It's the idea, yeah, you know what, if we're going to hang out, we all have to agree on this, and from now on, you're all going to agree with me. Uh, right? That, that's the unity by domination way of doing life. You either agree with me or we can't be friends anymore. Uh, it, it doesn't work, of course. Uh, it doesn't work because uh, that means a, a unity that is based on who is in power at the time and who has the most power at any given time. And, of course, the powers of this age, they duke it out, always seeking to gain control. It's a very volatile way of pursuing unity, but it's what we do in this age. On the most individualistic level, right, we we each at times play the role of Nimrod, don't we? Trying to build our own kingdom. But of course, for my kingdom to work, for my life to work the way I want it to work, uh, you have to get on board with my plans for my life. So again, we have to be united in purpose, my purpose, if I'm building my kingdom. And that's the way we think of unity. Of course, all that does is, is turn any diversity there is into division. If I want you to get on board with my plan for my life and you want me to get on board with your plan for your life, suddenly we're at an impasse. Friendships die, marriages end in divorce, families break up because we all want everyone to be united around our individual purpose, our kingdom of me. And of course, the the division and the domination that begins here with Nimrod extends throughout the rest of the Old Testament and throughout the rest of history, doesn't it? Nations rise and they try to dominate others and rule and enforce a kind of unity uh, on the earth. Well, what kind of unity is possible in the midst of such a diverse world with peoples spreading over the whole earth, each with its own language, clan, nation, and land? What kind of unity or stable unity can there be? Well, that brings us to the unity that comes only through the cross. Let's come back for a minute to the 70 nations Uh, Again, excluding the the parenthetical remark about the Philistines in verse 14, we have listed here 70 persons, peoples, or places. 70, it's a a number of kind of complete completeness because both 7 and 10 are are numbers that imply completeness in the Old Testament. 7, because God created the world in seven days. But 10 also has a kind of completeness to it. Think about the Exodus story, the 10 plagues followed by 10 commandments. And so the number 70, it's like this, it's large, complete number, this fullness. So we have here in the so-called table of nations, the 70 nations, the fullness of the nations spread out over all the earth. But later in Genesis, as we keep reading, what we'll find is that Jacob, who's also called Israel, is headed down to Egypt as a new nation of 70 people. And we're told that at least three times in Scripture, that all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. We find it at the end of Genesis. We find it at the beginning of Exodus. It's recounted again in Deuteronomy. Why? Right? What difference does it make for the children of Jacob to be 70 when they head into Egypt? Why does Genesis begin with 70 nations and end with a nation of 70 people? Well, as one commentator put it, Israel is a microcosm similar in form to the macrocosm. God has set the microcosm apart to bless the macrocosm. Or to put that in English, uh, God has set apart Israel to represent and ultimately bless the nations. The same thing happens within Israel when God appoints 70 elders to represent and bless the people of Israel. Well, how will that happen? How will Israel, this one nation, come to bless all the nations? 
Well, through one man who represents the whole, uh, one, one leader in Israel who represents all leaders, one person in Israel who represents all Israelites, one Israelite who will represent all peoples. God's plan has always been to bless the nations through him. Uh, one of the reasons for this chapter is to show that God's plan is bigger than Israel. It always has been. Very soon, the, the plan as we work through Genesis will narrow to Abraham But the goal from the start, and even as we read Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the goal has always been the nations, not just Abraham, not just Israel, but all peoples. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and what does he do? One of the things he does is he appoints 70 missionaries in Luke chapter 10. Uh, Now, if you look in Luke 10 in the ESV, it'll say 72, and it'll have the number 70 in a footnote. And the confusion comes in because of the Septuagint, actually. Uh, The the Septuagint is the Greek translation, an ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And the Septuagint has 72 names in Genesis chapter 10. And so in Luke 10, some versions have 70, others have 72. But whichever it is meant to be, the point is clear. Jesus is rebuilding Israel to begin his mission to all people. You see, one of the goal of Christ's work is to restore unity to the nations. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul says that God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. But how will Jesus restore this unity? How will it work? I mean, we've seen that domination didn't work, didn't work for uh, uh, Nimrod, ultimately, or any other nation that has tried to dominate others. And you could say, well, oh, domination didn't work because somebody always comes along with a bigger stick, but Jesus has the biggest stick. Uh, That's true, I guess. Uh, Nevertheless, Jesus does not pursue unity through domination, not like that. And don't get me wrong, Jesus uh, will come to judge, and on that day, however, it will not be to bring unity. Now, uh, Jesus is now bringing unity in the church, but how? How? How does he do that? Uh, In Revelation chapter 5, the the 24 elders uh, stand before the throne of God, 24, I think, representing the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of Jesus, unifying Old and New Testament, and they stand before the throne, they bow before Jesus, and they sing, "'Worthy are you to take up the scroll and to open its seals.'" For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus brings unity to the peoples of the earth, not by domination, not by employing the powers of this age, but by giving himself up to the the powers of this age to do their worst at the cross, and then demonstrating their utter powerlessness by rising from the dead. Jesus goes to the cross to bear sin, to ransom people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation, from every diverse population on earth. And then we find unity not by giving up that diversity, but by belonging to Jesus by faith. True unity is found in Christ. Now, you might think, okay, wait a minute, how is that any different? I mean, if people want to create unity by imposing their purposes on others, how is this any different than that. It's just that now it's Jesus' purpose, right? Why is that any better? Why is that okay? And there are two answers to that question, maybe more, but there are at least two. And the first is because Jesus actually is the rightful ruler of the world. Uh, Remember from the start, God made humanity to be his representatives on the earth, to, to rule the earth under him. 
But human beings rebelled and distorted that rule, perverting God's image. And so Jesus comes as the image of the invisible God. He always obeys the Father, becoming obedient even to the point of death on the cross. And as the obedient Son, God raised him from the dead, loosing the pangs of death, as Peter says. And seating him at his right hand in heaven, God gives him all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus is the king of heaven and earth. He is the rightful king of heaven and earth. He doesn't just go claiming kingship. He doesn't go try, try to dominate the world in order to boost himself up. No, he is the king of heaven and earth. He is the one to whom God has handed over all rule. Not me, not you, not any other earthly ruler. Jesus alone. Which is why unity is only ever found in him. That's why the so-called Great Commission begins like this. You remember the Great Commission in Matthew 28? It begins like this. Jesus comes to his disciples and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The Great Commission begins with Jesus' kingship. I have been exalted as the king over heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations or all ethnicities or all peoples. It could be translated. The second reason that Jesus' kingdom is better or, or different is this. Uh, you may remember in Matthew 6, uh, Matthew 6, Jesus, it's part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is there addressing our fears, our anxieties. And he says, uh, don't be anxious about food or drink or clothing or any other basic needs of life. And then he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In other words, stop pursuing your own kingdom, start pursuing God's kingdom, and he will care for all your needs. Now, you might say, well, of course he says that. That's what every earthly authority says who wants your complete allegiance. They say, oh, just follow me and I'll take care of you. So how is this any different? Well, the difference is that Jesus can actually follow through. Uh, the one who died for our sin to purchase our forgiveness and then rose from the dead now offers us a share in the new life he has received. He has resurrection behind his offer to care for us. So Jesus says, seek my kingdom and I'll care for you, even when it means raising you from the dead on the last day. Now you might still wonder, okay, if unity is found in Jesus, why is the church so divided? Which is a fair question which again has a couple of answers. And, and the first is that our unity is first and foremost objective, that, which is to say if you belong to Christ, we belong to one another, period, whether we like it or not. We are united to Christ, and so in a mysterious, spiritual, and real way, we are united to one another, whether we express that unity in the way we live or not, just as any family has a kind of unity as a family but doesn't always express that in the way that family works. And yet, second, our unity is meant to grow subjectively as we learn by the power of the Spirit to love our brothers and sisters with whom we differ. It's, it's a progress. It's a work in progress. And yet, finally, our unity will be complete on the last day when people from every tribe, tongue, and nation gather around the throne to worship our God and his Christ. 
Isaiah says of that day in Isaiah chapter 19, in that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day Israel will be the third with Egypt, and Assyria a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt my people, and Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel my inheritance. See, on that last day, God will say, out loud, all the nations are mine because of Christ. Of course, in a sense, we don't have to wait for that day. We have to wait for the fullness, but we can move toward that day even now in two ways. First, in our love for the nations. As we show love for all the peoples of the earth, we foreshadow that great day when people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will gather around the throne in love. Second, in our pursuit of unity with other Christians. Again, unity is first objective, but we can pursue it in the way that we love others, being patient with those with whom we disagree, bearing with others' faults, and encouraging each other to pursue the truth, and so grow in unity of doctrine and purpose and love to the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we uh, marvel that you are the creator of heaven and earth, You are the creator of humanity, and what that means is on some level, all of us are are your creatures uh, coming from Adam, children of Adam, children of Noah. Father, we uh, mourn the divisions of this world that have come about because of sin, uh, the brokenness of this age, and the the ways that we try to impose uh, a false unity on the world. And we long for the day when Christ will return, when the nations will be one again in him as we stand around the throne or bow around the throne to worship you together. Father, we pray that you would show us how we can be a part of your work moving to that end even now. We also pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.